Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Marshall Project has found that thousands of people in state prisons for having committed violent crimes didn't do so. In actuality, the definition of a violent crime varies from state to state. For instance, more than a dozen states classify entering a dwelling that isn't one's own as a violent crime, as is burglary. In North Carolina, trafficking a stolen identity and selling drugs within a thousand feet of a school or playground are deemed violent crimes. In Minnesota, aiding someone in attempting suicide and marijuana possession in certain quantities are violent crimes. So-called violent crimes in other jurisdictions include purse snatching, embezzlement, theft of drugs, and in New York, possessing a gun with bullets. If people convicted of these so-called violent crimes are re-arrested, they can be considered to have a violent criminal history and must be denied bail, community supervision, and instead sent to prison. If they fail a drug test when under supervision, they may be sent back to prison for being a violent offender, even though testing positive for drugs isn't a violent crime itself. According to Prison Legal News, quote, If the U.S. is serious about criminal justice reform, rethinking the way that violent crime is defined would be a significant step in reducing mass incarceration, unquote. On our episode this week, we're talking about the government program called Weed and Seed. We start with a brief history of the program, its causes and effects, as well as its lasting resonance in law enforcement and governmental programs. First, we'll give you some background context on the program Weed and Seed. Throughout the 1990s, rebellions erupted in U.S. cities to protest police violence against residents of color. After police murdered unarmed people of color in Washington, D.C. and St. Petersburg, Florida, protesters blocked traffic, threw bottles and rocks, and torched police cars. But the most visible and large-scale rebellion took place in Los Angeles in 1992, following the acquittal of four police officers who had been videotaped beating a black motorist, Rodney King. The so-called Rodney King riots lasted for six days and became the longest anti-police rebellion in U.S. history. After the L.A. uprising, President George H.W. Bush seized on the crisis to push through a program called Weed and Seed. The Weed and Seed program was designed to weed out criminals from impoverished urban communities and seed these communities with social programs. Weed and Seed had failed in Congress once before, but after the street protests in L.A., Weed and Seed was fast-tracked and funded by Congress. The Weed and Seed program gave law enforcement increased control over the delivery of public goods, such as healthcare, education, job training, and drug treatment and counseling. A Department of Justice newsletter stated that under Weed and Seed, quote, community-focused human services programs and neighborhood improvement initiatives are strategically linked with intensified, geographically targeted law enforcement efforts by police and prosecutors, unquote. Weed and Seed was not a specific program. It was a federal coordination strategy to integrate police into the distribution of public resources. In this strategy, so-called criminals in neighborhoods of color were seen as the major obstacle to helping communities recover from poverty and social marginalization. In other words, people of color produced crime and violence and made their own neighborhoods less safe, rather than capitalist exploitation, predatory developers, or even mass incarceration itself. The current attorney general, William Barr, who also served under Bush, said at the time that, quote, 
social programs must be closely coordinated and integrated with law enforcement efforts, unquote. At the heart of Weed and Seed was the federal government's belief that more police and prisons were the solution to urban poverty. But the timing of the rollout also suggests that Weed and Seed was a project to stamp out urban protests through the promise of badly needed funds and the threat of intensified policing. Weed and Seed was rolled out in 1992 in 17 cities, including Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Atlanta, Boston, and Seattle. The federal strategy was intentionally vague, leaving the details to the discretion of city authorities. Steering committees that were appointed to coordinate and implement the program were typically chaired by law enforcement authorities like prosecutors or public officials like mayors. As a result, many of the individuals leading the program were drawn from law enforcement. For example, in Pittsburgh, the Weed and Seed Task Force was made up of local police officers, as well as agents from the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Immigration and Naturalization Services, the predecessor to ICE. In some cities, the federal program was kicked off with mass roundups and arrest campaigns. For example, in St. Louis, the first Weed and Seed action was a coordinated raid, with police and federal agents, quote, swooping in to serve search warrants and make arrests, unquote, according to an article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. A socialist journalist wrote in 1992 that, quote, Weed and Seed is the first step toward placing all social programs under law enforcement control and implementing a policy of domestic counterinsurgency perfected by the military and CIA to quell rebellion in places like El Salvador, unquote. By 2004, about 300 local sites were receiving over $70 million in weed and seed funding. Max Felter-Cantor discusses the implementation of weed and seed in L.A. and the community mobilization that rose up to protest the program. In Seattle, as in Los Angeles, protesters immediately fought the implementation of weed and seed. Norm Rice, the liberal black mayor in 1992, defended the program by arguing that, quote, we really view this grant as an extension of our existing community police team efforts, providing more resources for the community and our police to utilize in their joint efforts to promote neighborhood safety, unquote. But the initial breakdown of the funds did not suggest that the promotion of neighborhood safety was a program priority. Two-thirds of the Seattle Weed and Seed money was earmarked for law enforcement, and only one-third for social services, such as employment programs for teenagers. Black women leading an organization called Mothers Against Police Harassment sparked a broad campaign against weed and seed, and forced Mayor Rice to postpone the program until local leaders from the targeted neighborhoods had a substantial role in the planning process. Community activists were appointed to the steering committee, and by the 1993 rollout of weed and seed, over half the funds were dedicated to social welfare programs. One problem with weed and seed was the lack of accountability or measurements to assess whether or not the program was achieving its stated goal of making communities safer and more vibrant. Supporters typically backed up the success of Weed and Seed by pointing to crime statistics and arrests made. For example, Purdue sociology professor Joanne Miller was an academic partner for the Weed and Seed program in Lafayette, Indiana. When she reported on the progress of the Weed and Seed program there, she, quote, highlighted positive developments, including a 22% increase in drug dealing arrests, according to a press release from Purdue Center for Families. The federal government recognized this problem with Weed and Seed. In 2004, the U.S. Government Accountability Office issued a report that detailed the oversight agency's issues with weed and seed. The GAO noted that weed and seed never developed a way to measure or assess the outcomes of the program. There were no requirements in place to measure whether weed and seed had improved the lives of people living in directly impacted communities 
or to assign accountability if Wiedenseed failed. There is no evidence to suggest that the continued failure of Wiedenseed to meet its oversight requirements led to federal divestment from the program. Indeed, the criminal justice system in the U.S. is littered with massively funded programs that have continued, despite overwhelming evidence that they do not make communities safer. It is unclear when or why Weed and Seed began to unwind. However, by the 2010s, funding for programming was cut in districts throughout the country. Law enforcement-aligned community leaders were some of the loudest to mourn the loss of Weed and Seed. In 2011, Carrie Goodwin, the Weed and Seed coordinator in Dallas, regretted that funding for his program had dried up. Since Dallas Weed and Seed started in 2005, Goodwin claimed that, quote, I personally in my neighborhood have brought more than a million dollars in police overtime money in the city of Dallas. Ed Hennessy, the director of the Weed and Seed program in St. Louis, which was defunded in 2012, said at the time that, quote, it's the police that we will miss. In other cities, the seed resources became vulnerable to cuts after they were transferred away from a law enforcement agency. In 1999, police officers in Las Cruces, New Mexico, won a Weed and Seed grant to build a safe haven community resource center, which offered food, clothing, school supplies, and educational, athletic, and recreational activities to poor youth. However, 15 years later, in 2014, the Safe Haven Community Center program was transferred from the police department to the Las Cruces Parks and Recreation Department. After the transfer, the community center's funding was steadily and dramatically cut from half a million dollars to only $180,000. In just two years, the programming and resources at the Safe Haven Community Center were gutted. What activists made very clear during the height of the Weed and Seed initiative was that the two stated goals of weeding and seeding were a fundamental contradiction. Weeding in neighborhoods invariably led to more arrests and more incarcerated community members. The punitive elements of the Weed and Seed program compounded the crisis of mass incarceration. The social isolation of incarceration deepened the poverty of people who were arrested, and families and communities suffered the collateral damage of the incarceration of their loved ones. The meager seed money could not repair the damage of the incarceration that was accelerated by targeted weeding. Weed and seed programs might be phased out, but the logic that sustained weed and seed is still in operation. For example, less than a week after Chicago teachers went on strike this past fall to demand basic educational resources in Chicago public schools, it was announced that the Chicago Police Department's budget would swell to over $1.7 billion. Federal and local authorities continue to pour money into law enforcement weeding while starving out community activists who are committed to planting seeds in their neighborhoods. Up next, Max Felker Cantor, author of Policing Los Angeles, a book which tracks the expansion of police power between the Watts Rebellion and the Rodney King Uprising, gives his insights into weed and seed, its impacts, and its aftermath. Here he is. Liberal politics of the city, while many of those politicians called for reform of the police, that they didn't actually do much to, to change the power the police had in the city. They might have said, yes, we need to have some changes to oversight and to shooting policies and use of force policies, but they never really came out to say we need to fundamentally change how the police operate or what we expect them to do. And up until roughly the 1992 rebellion, 
or until after the Rampart scandal, which was this big corruption scandal um, in the 90s, um, when then there was a consent decree put on the department. Um, and so why that's important, I think, is calls for reform oftentimes lead to an expansion of police authority or power or involvement in other areas of governance in city politics. And so, for example, with Weed and Seed, a program that was a national program that began in 1991, Los Angeles was brought on as a weed, one of the first Weed and Seed cities after the 1992 rebellion, you know, in response to the acquittal of the officers who beat Rodney King. What they said, at least those in, the people in charge of the recovery in Los Angeles said, well, we didn't see what we'll do is we'll have $19 million. We'll give $1 million to increase policing and $18 million to economic development and services in these communities. In some cases, what it suggests is, oh, this is a reform. This is a means to say, yes, we're really going to invest in communities. But what it ended up doing, and you had activists from CAPA, the Coalition Against Police Abuse, and activists um, in the Labor Community Strategy Center, which was an organization that came out of social justice battles in the 80s. And what they started to say is, this weed and seed program, what it actually does, and this is what I argue in the book as well, is what it does is it links policing to social services. So what it actually does is it, it doesn't divorce them and say, yes, we need to invest in all these community programs and services. It linked those two together. So you'd have them saying, officials say, we're going to weed the community of the violent gang members and drug dealers, and then we're going to seed it with this other sorts of social service funding. Well, I argue is what that program then did was combine a punitive policing measure to um, these so-called liberal programs and progressive programs. Um, and that what we can think of that is, so, so, it, so it expanded the authority and reach of the police under the guise of this kind of, oh, we're going to bring in all this money for other things besides policing. And so that was a way that Weedensied could operate under the guise of reform, but actually expand policing. Um, and you had some resistance to that in the community at the time, saying, A, we don't need you know, the youth of our community to be portrayed as, quote, weeds. It just further criminalizes these young black and Latino and Latinx um, members of our community by calling them weeds. And the other thing that would happen is by thinking about this as weeding, it removed people from the community and further criminalized the community, which undermined the stability in the community that would have, would have existed otherwise because you're tearing people out of it. And so there's this kind of way that liberal reforms like weed and seed could actually grow that police power. Now, in Los Angeles, they ended up changing the name of the weed and seed program in response to community activism. And what they called it eventually was Community Projects for Restoration. And so they changed the name in response to protest, but they're still linking it to policing. And so, and this is a nationwide program um, and continues to exist through the 90s and into the 2000s. So the lessons we can learn from it are the ways that we should probably not link together 
punitive policies with these kind of so-called progressive reforms. There's a big community study on Seattle, but what it resembles, at least, is community-oriented policing. And so, because this is, it was essentially a form of com- community-oriented policing, where like, we're going to have officers trying to have, like, they would have meetings with the community residents. They would, you know, try to be more engaged in dialogue with community members like, in kind of neighborhood meetings and other things like that. Um, and so it was a way to, that there was trying to get pol- police to be more um, engaged with the community. And in many ways, oftentimes what it ended up doing, and there was some evidence of this in Los Angeles, is that they would say, well, really what the police come, they just come in and tell us how we should be operating. They're not actually really asking the community what needs to be done in these places. And so I don't have the full story of how it plays out in LA after this moment, but it becomes really another, it becomes another kind of form of this community-oriented policing. And there's reports from the, you know, mid and mid-2000s in which they are still, you know, operating weed and seed in a variety of places across the city. Um, you know, and they would work, it would work because they would designate certain areas in cities as weed and seed sites. So it's not just the city as a whole, they would designate particular areas. Um, so it continued on for close to two or three decades. And I would have to, I would have to double check if it is still in existence. But, you know, again, the, in places where it might have been dropped or not, in not in place anymore, I think what you would probably see replacing it are these, you know, are these, you know, in the last four or five years, you know, there's all these calls for greater community oriented policing, you know, get the police to, to understand the communities more. And so, you know, it's, it would be other programs like that. I don't know. I don't have any specifics on what, what it would be that would replace those in particular, but you know, these, these weed and seed programs did live on in a variety of communities for, for decades, um, in some places, this kind of this dual weeding and seeding, you know, this, this two-sided program. The National Criminal Justice Reference Service has a lot of the kind of past reports and other things um, from grants that were made for weed and seed. And so that's a location for finding, um, it's a website for finding information about specific grants and reports of weed and seed in different places. There was a a study of weed and seed in Seattle um, where a scholar did an entire study of just the Seattle weed and seed program. And so that would be another place as well to look. Um, But, you know, and the thing, as you mentioned, like these are really interesting programs because it's framed as a way of this is a comprehensive approach to dealing with a neighborhood's or an area's social problems because they're saying law enforcement, economic development, social services, health, all the that we didn't see encompasses all of those things. And so it's it's a way it's a, it's interesting in that way because it it gets framed, you know, and I saw this in Los Angeles in the 90s. Um, when it first started, you know, in 1991, 1992, that it gets framed in this way that this is about, you know, total community redevelopment and rejuvenation. But what it does, you know, up to, you know, through these ones, a couple of these reports that I 
we've seen from the early 2000s, it continues to tie all of that to, you know, well, we're going to enhance policing at the same time. So which, which is why I find it so interesting to kind of think through. What was so, you know, we might call unique about the Rodney King event was not the beating per se, because the LAPD had a long history of abusive practices, but that it was caught on videotape. And so that is one, in some ways, one similarity that we see more with the more recent protest, you know, protests around policing is a lot of the use of videotape, you know, in terms of body cameras and all that stuff is we have this, you know, in our modern moment. I think a lot of this has become a lot of the instances of police shootings have come have come because of that increased visibility. Um, and I think that's one of the major differences, too, right, is that you have social media around organizing is a, is a new form of um, developing organizing. Um, there's, you know, this attention to, you know, using that as a as a tool which obviously wasn't available in the early 90s. Um, and so that organizing tool has shifted from 92 to now, especially after Ferguson. And, but in many, in some ways, there's other, there's many similarities too. And those being that the response to police abuse by activists gets criminalized and repressed, right? And so you saw that throughout the 80s and into the 90s in Los Angeles, that the response to these moments of anti-police protest become criminalized. Um, you had George H.W. Bush, the president, you know, in 92, saying things like, these are all criminals and hoodlums, that that's, the, that's what this riot's about. It's not about, you know, this political protest against the injustice of these officers getting acquitted. Um, and you see, you see that a similar kind of story with post Ferguson is this protests are the ones that are criminalized. And the thing, the, the violence is the show of state violence, right? And the part of these militarized police forces. So those are, I see that as in some ways, a lot of similarities in the reaction of the state to anti-police protest. But these, the organizing has evolved, obviously, through the use of technology, as, as I mentioned before. And the organizing has broadened out in many, you know, is dealing with newer, new issues, especially in the organizing that we see today, especially with Black Lives Matter, especially led by women of color, queer women of color, the kind of greater attention to issues of gender and LGBTQ issues related to policing, I think, is something that has, been, has, has shifted not that it wasn't there in the 80s and 90s, but it's become much more visible. Women of color being at the forefront of these movements. And I think the important thing is that most of these movements we see today, you know, the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, see themselves, you know, not as the same movements, but as part of this longer history of struggle, whether it's to the things I talk about in terms of Los Angeles and its history of anti-police abuse activism, or, you know, just the longer history of struggle for racial and social justice in the United States, going back to the Black Freedom Movement and others. And so, but I do think, you know, there are, there's a lot of both continuity and change between the 90s and, and today. Well, one other thing that on the top of my mind for <laughs> this kind of five-year anniversary of the Ferguson uprisings and, the, you know, the Michael Brown's killing is the responses we saw around 
how do you address these problems of police violence and police killings and murders is, oh, we just need more technology, right? We need more body cameras and we need more ability to try to hold the police accountable. And a lot of those reforms are just are in many ways just updated versions for a techno for a more kind of technological era than the, the era that I talk about in the book is that we see this with a lot of the body camera footages. There might be body camera footage, but the police oftentimes don't want to release it. So these reforms coming out of Ferguson that people thought, oh, this will be a way that we can really hold the police accountable all the time, doesn't always end up being the case. I think that's an important point to kind of continue to remember is that things that sound great, you know, oh yeah, body camera footage, transparency in certain areas, reduce the militarization, doesn't always get at the fundamental question of, you know, who holds power and authority in cities. And I make, I argue that police departments hold an immense amount of power in many cities. And so I think that's something to to remember, um, especially on this five-year anniversary. Um, But to your second question, I think the one thing that I would highlight that I probably didn't talk about in that lecture is that is, is is the question of policing and its relation to immigration enforcement. And what I mean by that is that the LAPD had a long history of involvement with the Immigration and Naturalization Service, you know, which no longer exists. And now you have ICE and the Border Patrol. But with INS, um, the LAPD would, up to the 1970s, by and large, would arrest people for status violations, so for being undocumented, and hand them over to the INS for deportation at times. Um, in the 70s, the LAPD passed this thing in the late 70s called Special Order 40, where they said they would not arrest people based on their status. And so they would say what we need to do, the reason why they said that is we need trust in the community so that people would come to the police when they were victims of a crime, for example. And so they had this Special Order 40, which was supposed to say, like, we won't investigate status violations for immigrant communities so can come trust us and i argue actually in that section of the book that that actually has an up and down history and what it actually does is the police then expand into new areas of policing they open up storefronts in immigrant communities to try to you know um, expand relations with those communities Um, but they also find new ways to criminalize immigrants um, especially with the drug and gang war in the 80s in Los Angeles is, is we're not going to investigate status, but we know that we're going to, they characterize many undocumented immigrants as gang members or drug dealers. And so they were able to then kind of circumvent their own policies around around non-enforcement of immigration violations. Um, That came to a head in 1992 during the Los Angeles uprising, you know, in April of 92, the INS officers were brought in and detained many undocumented immigrants during that moment um, with the help, you know, of police. And so I just think that's a story that I'd like to highlight that I don't think I talked about before because, you know, of our current moment when the questions around the created crisis um, by U.S. policies at the border and questions around undocumented immigrants um, in the United States today and the, the role of 
the police, the role of ICE and the Border Patrol in terms of present day policies around the status of immigrants in the United States today is that we can learn these lessons of the ways that even those same reforms of, of the LAPD saying we won't deal, we won't cooperate with INS on certain things doesn't always work out in practice. And so I think that's just a, something to, to keep in mind in our present moment, you know, especially even though I think the news is the president is trying to reduce the ability for even, quote, legal migrants to gain access to green cards and citizenship if you, you know, need, if you're liable to become, you know, need social services. Um, and so I think these are some important lessons that I, I wanted to highlight there for our present moment. Special thanks to Anne Gray Fisher and Max Felker Cantor for their help with this week's program. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.